The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Think things over before you decide on your next wish. Don't rush into it. Have a bit of kip. Things will seem clearer in the morning. You can use my bed if you like. Slip into this. Huh. Where will you sleep then? Oh, don't worry about me. I never do. I had a fitful doze in the Middle Ages. Since then, nothing. Go on, you can change through there. Thank you. It's very kind of you to lend me your room and your bed like this. You're the first person who's ever shown any concern for me, and you're the devil. I mean, God's never taken any interest in me, as far as I can see. Of course not. He never pushes himself forward. Prefers to work subliminally. It's the oldest trick in the game, your soft cell technique. Well, I wish he would push himself forward and help people a bit and prove he was there. Well, in God's view, for what it's worth, this would interfere with your freedom of choice. Freedom of choice? What sort of freedom of choice did I have about where I was born and what size I was and what a bloody awful job I landed myself in? Plummy, if we really had freedom of choice, we we should be able to decide who our parents are and what we look like and everything. I couldn't agree more. Well then, why the hell doesn't he do something about it? God knows. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, September 27, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. To black and white Under the Everything will be alright Freedom of choice is what makes morality a necessity. And it's why morality exists for human life on this earth. There are those who believe that morality is not possible without the existence of a deity. While there are others who believe that morality without a deity, without God, is the only way to achieve that morality. It's a debate that's been getting unprecedented attention thanks to the various internet bloggers and commentaries that have brought the issue to an increasingly engaged and growing audience. On today's show, you'll be hearing a number of contrasting opinions on this subject, a subject faced by each and every successive generation comprised of individuals who will all be asking the same kinds of questions. Is there an answer that is just right? Well, let's check out that possibility, shall we? After this reminder that you can write and indeed disagree with us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archive broadcasts, many of which have to do with this very subject. There is a belief among many people that morality is simply not possible without the agent of morality having a belief in a deity of some sort. Morality without God is seen as being an impossibility, and that's a view I wish to challenge today. I think it's a dangerous view, and not by arguing about whether God exists or not, although that's an inevitable part of the discussion, but to clearly define what morality actually is and why. We don't need a God concept to explain that. This debate is nothing new or confined to modern times because, you know, modern times are always with us. (laughs) And so, too, has been this debate. So, speaking of the times, 
Robert Vaughn sent me a link to this fascinating piece of history going back to 1757, which addresses this very fear. He ran into this fascinating letter from Benjamin Franklin to an unknown author about the value of religion and society. In it, he is apparently trying to persuade the author not to publish a piece probably about the non-existence of God or the value of providence, said Robert Vaughn in his memo to me. And he forwarded a link from the National Archives, Founders Online, and it is a letter from Benjamin Franklin, and they're not sure to whom, but it was written on December 13, 1757, and there's some historical controversy about whether this was perhaps written to Thomas Paine or to Joseph Huey. But in any case, here was Benjamin Franklin's response to that person. Quote, Dear Sir, I have read your manuscript with some attention. You strike at the foundation of all religion. For without the belief of a providence that takes cognizance of, guards and guides, and may favor particular persons, there is no motive to worship a deity, to fear its displeasure, or to pray for its protection. I will not enter into any discussion of your principles, though you seem to desire it. At present, I shall only give you my opinion that though your reasonings are subtle and may prevail with some readers, you will not succeed so as to change the general sentiments of mankind on that subject, and the consequence of printing this piece will be a great deal of odium drawn upon yourself. Mischief to you, and no benefit to others. This is interesting. Quote, you yourself may find it easy to live a virtuous life without the assistance afforded by religion. You have a clear perception of the advantages of virtue and the disadvantages of vice, and possessing a strength of resolution sufficient to enable you to resist common temptations. But think how great a proportion of mankind consists of weak and ignorant men and women, of inexperienced and inconsiderate youth of both sexes, who have need of the motives of religion to restrain them from vice, to support their virtue, and retain them in the practice of it till it becomes habitual. And perhaps you are indebted to your religious education for the habits of virtue upon which you now value yourself. I would advise you, therefore, to burn this piece before it is seen by any other person. If men are so wicked as we now see them with religion, what would they be if without it? Simply yours. <laughs> B.F. Now, Benjamin Franklin was expressing what Ayn Rand defined as the argument from depravity, that men would be depraved and immoral should they not have a faith. Franklin has argued that religion and a belief in a deity specifically exists for, quote, weak and ignorant men and women, <laughs> end quote. I mean, ouch. <laughs> How is that not a direct insult to the concept of deity itself? Is deity just for stupid and weak people? Aren't we supposed to strive for knowledge and strength? I think this is a despicable reason for promoting an acknowledged untruth, and it begs a contradiction. Apparently, weak and ignorant men and women have sufficient intelligence and strength to be taught religious mysticism based on punishment and reward, but apparently they're too ignorant to grasp reality and reason. How, how does that work? Because if that's so, then why even bother teaching them anything? Just for self-defense because you fear that they might harm or attack you? I think that's a large part of the motive. That's what it sounds like to me, at least as far as that particular argument goes. Quote, if men are so wicked as we now see them with religion, what would they be without it? End quote. 
asks Franklin as if to avoid <laughs> the question that begs asking. Yeah, what if the religion is the cause of their wickedness? Islamist terrorism, anyone? If men are wicked with religion, then one might conclude that without religion or faith, even in a best-case scenario for the believers, nothing really will have changed. You'll still be wicked, right? So what's the difference? But if men are killing, raping, and pillaging with religion, then without religion, how can they become more wicked? That, that's a contradiction. And that's because everybody avoids discussing the issue in its proper context and under a proper discipline. And of course, that discipline is philosophy. Any questions or issues concerning the nature of morality are by definition philosophical questions. The belief that morality cannot exist without having a belief in God, you know, whether God actually exists seems a secondary consideration, you know. It's like Jordan Peterson saying, I behave as if God existed. That's his argument, but he doesn't really believe God exists. But nevertheless, my copy of the very excellent Encyclopedia of Philosophy published by Macmillan Publishing Company and edited by Paul Edwards, which published in 1967. It contains a subject entry titled, quote, Moral Arguments for the Existence of God. And I think it's a, it's a backwards reasoning, or perhaps more accurately, an inverted philosophical hierarchy, in effect placing consequence, you know, morality, before cause, which is metaphysics and epistemology. Morality and ethics is a branch of philosophy. And in the hierarchy of philosophy, it's not the first one. It's the third. The first two being metaphysics and epistemology. Metaphysics offers us two fundamental choices. We can either accept reality as our standard of what exists, or we can choose some level of subjectivity or the supernatural or fantasy as our standard of what exists. Epistemology, which is the knowledge of knowledge, essentially, offers us two fundamental choices. We can either determine what is real through the use of reason, or we can define our own reality through the use of faith or intuition or, or mere wish-making. That's exactly what people do. Those are your choices. And in the light of reason, I don't even see that there is a choice between each of the two alternatives, but the fact that we can choose between them is, in fact, the best way of demonstrating that we have a free will, isn't it? You know, I once recall postulating to Western University's Chris Essex a question relating to artificial intelligence, where I suggested that the only proof I would accept that artificial intelligence has a free will is if there's evidence of artificial intelligence choosing to behave irrationally, even when mechanically and electronically perfectly sound. If you can't behave irrationally, if you cannot choose the evil, then you are not capable of choice. And that's what makes humans different from animals. They don't have that choice. Only when we have determined our metaphysical and epistemological premises are we able to possibly arrive at anything that we could call morality. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't start with morality and then determine the premises on which your morality is based. That's like starting with an answer and then spending all your time trying to figure out the question. <laughs> if you believe that reality 
is the standard against which we judge something to be true or false, fact or non-fact, then your code of ethics or your morality will be very different than if you believe in something outside the realm of reality, like what we call the supernatural. And a person believing in an afterlife, for example, will adopt a very different moral standard than will a person who accepts human mortality. Sacrifice will become a moral standard to the former, while rational self-interest will become the moral standard of the latter. This is what we've seen. Now, in the encyclopedia that I referenced earlier, they dealt with the whole issue of ethics and the problem of free will and divine foreknowledge going into a history all the way back to when this whole thought process began up to the modern era. Quote, The problem of free will is critical in Christian ethics, which emphasizes responsibility and punishment. The Greek ideal of practical reason ensuring physical and mental well-being was supplanted by the ideal of purification of the soul through suffering, renunciation, and humble obedience to divine will. Now this really explains why the Greek gods were true heroes and adventurers, unlike Christ, who some maintain is a hero, but whose objective was self-sacrifice at the hands of the ignorant, you know. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. That's martyrdom, not necessarily heroism, as Jordan Peterson always implies about Christ. In every way, I think the Greek ethics, as described here, is superior to the Christian. Quote, where the practice of virtue produced well-being as its natural consequence, as in the Greek view, virtue carries with it its own reward in accordance with the causal processes of nature, so that causal necessity and moral desert are not merely compatible, they normally coincide. But in the Christian view, causal necessity and moral responsibility seem incompatible, for the choice between good and evil is made by the soul, independent of natural processes, and its reward or punishment is independent of the natural effects of human actions. Man is punished or rewarded to the degree to which he voluntarily obeys or disobeys the commands of God. In the Greek view, Man suffers from the natural consequences of his mistakes. But in the Christian view, no matter what the natural consequences of his actions, he is held to account for the state of his soul. It is his motives and not his actions that count in assessment of his moral responsibility. And the primary motive is his desire for, or his turning away from, God. Responsibility is thus transferred from the consequences of a person's actions to the state of his soul. Yet if the soul is created by God and not subject to its temporary owner's control, then in what sense can man be said to have freedom of choice between good and evil? Then we come to the question of moral reasoning. Quote, those philosophers who bridge the is-ought gap were trying, although perhaps in a mistaken way, to do something that's very important. It is a fact of moral reasoning that certain facts are good reasons for moral judgments. Moral discourse is a form of practical discourse. Moral questions are fundamentally questions about what we are to do. The primary intent of moral utterances is not to assert that so-and-so is the case, but to advise, admonish, suggest, proclaim, or protest that so-and-so be done. Moral knowledge is knowledge about what to do or about what attitude to take towards what has been done, is being done, or is intended. 
It is a procedural rule of morality that the moral agent as well as the moral critic must, in making moral judgments, try to assume the viewpoint of an impartial but sympathetic observer. Ideally, moral judgments are made in the light of full knowledge and appreciation of the relevant facts, and they must be made in the light of the facts that the moral agent can be reasonably expected to have in his possession when he makes a judgment. It is not the case that there is no logical limit to what could count as a valid moral judgment. There are unequivocal material procedural rules that define morality. Hello? <laughs> They limit the scope of what counts as moral judgment, and they have a rational point. Thus, under certain conditions, certain moral judgments are objectively true and others are false. That is to say, there are certain moral truths that do not at all depend on the personal idiosyncrasies or cultural perspective of anyone, but would be affirmed by any rational agent apprised of the relevant facts. And if this is so, then neither relativism nor any form of subjectivism can be an adequate account of moral reasoning. Moral reasoning remains a rule-governed activity with an objective rationale, end quote. That's just amazing stuff, and it's so basic and so fundamental. We'll be concluding our show today with the purpose, limits, and scope of that morality, but not before considering some of the popular misconceptions and philosophical entanglements that people get themselves caught in as they attempt to resolve philosophical issues without using philosophical principles. On the other side of our upcoming bumper, we'll be hearing the voice of comedian and online blogger Owen Benjamin from his September 14th announcement that YouTube had cut him off from live streaming. And that's a topic we'll revisit on another day. But during that discussion he had, he also digressed into a discussion about God, the devil, and atheists. And his opinions are somewhat reflective of those I hear from many other people on the subject, and that's why I took a look at it. And on this side of the bumper, we'll share a quick smile or two offered by Pat Condell, who most know from his online presentations challenging the irrationalities of our day. But this time around, as heard in his January 15, 1992 stand-up comedy presentation made on a show called Laughter Hours, from Pat Condell's Godless Comedy. I'm a Catholic, I've got to say that. I'm a Catholic, so I believe uh, lots of shit, actually. <laughs> People always tell me I'm really gullible, and I believe them. <laughs> Such is my simple faith. But I do, I mean, I believe in the virgin birth, which, of course, being physically impossible, therefore, to Catholics, it must be true. Right? But imagine the scene, Mary and Joseph on the road with the donkey stopping at the wayside inn, and it's uh, like, there you go, two turkey dinners, two pints of lager. Tell me, um, how far are you folks travelling, anyway? Oh, we're, we're on our way to Bethlehem. My wife's going to have a baby. She's a virgin. <laughs> really? Tell me, do you play poker at all? <laughs> The only way out is personal accountability, personal responsibility. You know how infuriating it is to hear the Pope and some of these high-level Catholics blame their, their corruption on Satan? I, I'm Christian. I believe there's a God and a devil. Uh, but that's not how it works. 
They're both right here. God and the devil are both here. And it's your choice. And they're in all of us. And uh, to, to pass that off on someone else, to say, oh, it's the devil. Yeah, but you choose. You always have to welcome in the devil. You always have to welcome in the vampires. That's the whole thing. That's your choice. And I've had some good chats with atheists lately. There's, there's a, a, a real divide I've noticed between atheists. They either want to debate ideas with me, you know, um, because I don't hate atheists. I love a lot of atheists. There's some atheists who are some of my good friends. It, my point that I did on my last podcast, rest in peace, was uh, that without the, without the belief in God or a creator or something that sparks our divinity, there is no free will. Therefore, you can't use words like I am, I will, I am going to because we just be animals. We're a series of chemical reactions, right? So I had some good talks with um, atheists who'd send me clips. Check this out, Big Bear. You don't, you don't need to be determined, blah, blah. And then you'd see the ones that are like, hey, man, I was once... Oh, shit. Hey. I was once a Patreon and I thought I would support you and, and now to see you attack me... It's like, dude... You're broken. You're broken. Like at this point, I'm like, you're broken toys. If if an atheist can't debate an idea, like what good are they? They're the worst of both worlds. They claim to be rational, but are completely irrational. Like what is that? You know, it's like, do you feel personally attacked? Try try to argue your point. Unfortunately, there's a, a good chance you can't because I know some very intelligent atheists that have argued that you can have free will and be an atheist. The arguments haven't swayed me. That doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just like, okay, I saw the YouTube clip. I've, I've read that book, but I don't see why we aren't an unfolding series of chemical reactions. Uh, like there's a Furby doll or something called a Furby doll or something. They came out with this doll that reacted to stimuli. Like if you shook it, it was like, oh no, don't shake me. And they made it so real that there was this one video of people like abusing the doll and it was real creepy. You know, they were just hitting this child's doll and it was like, no. And they were like cutting, you know. And if you don't believe in God and free will, we're just a complex Furby doll. Like all we are is a series of cause and effect chemical reactions that one stimuli does this and another stimuli the spark of divinity the, the the soul comes from a creator and and some atheists were like oh well you know you don't believe in eight hundred thousand gods and then you think the one no no that's not the point there's people that believe in uh, a different god than me or gods or uh some sort of religion that justifies free will and um the divinity of man and so those people are, are not being hypocritical when they say, I am, I will, I think, I will do. That's the whole point. I'm not this, I'm not a converter. I'm not a preacher. I'm not this guy being like, I'm not even very religious. I'm, I'm Christian, but I don't, most churches make me feel uncomfortable, to be completely honest. So like, I'm not out here being like, if you aren't this brand of Baptist, you sir, or no, that's not me at all. I know that my belief system requires a, a leap of faith, and I, I'm honest about that. I can't prove God, just like you can't prove not God. 
So, like, I'm not saying, I'm saying that is faith. Like, there, I do have an element of faith. Now, are you willing to say that your entire framework of language, thought, beliefs, family, nation, existence is based on the concept of a creator? So that when you're arguing for atheism using our language and our current presuppositions of existence, I am, you are, that doesn't exist in a deterministic Furby doll universe. And these are debates you can have with atheists and still be their friends. The atheists that are like, you're irrational, you believe in a man on a cloud, it's like, bitch, I think more than you. Like, you haven't thought it through and your arrogance is showing, you know? Wow, hard to know where to start with this one. <laughs> First, did it not occur to Owen Benjamin that the atheists calling him irrational maybe have thought it through? You can't possibly become an atheist without going through a thought process. It doesn't work the other way around. It's the blind believers who never think it through. They believe it through. And Owen Benjamin, by his own admission, did not think it through. He told us so. He resorted to a leap of faith. Which is different from irrationality, exactly how? Want to explain that to me? Taking a leap of faith means not thinking about it, not thinking it through. And worse, it means that he has chosen not to think it through. That's a very telling and psychological revelation, and not just about Owen Benjamin, but about the whole nature of the God debate and free will. I mean, the poor fellow has some, some of the right inclinations, okay? But it's a complete train wreck trying to argue his case, whatever that might be, and I assume it is for some kind of morality. I know that my belief system requires a leap of faith. I can't prove God just like you can't prove not God. I'm saying that is faith. Well, <laughs> quote, faith is an unintelligible being instead of clarifying our thoughts and rationalizing our lives makes everything a puzzle, wrote M.M. Mangasarian in his book Morality Without God. But resorting to faith is a way of saying, I've given up trying to figure this one out. <laughs> yeah, and if God and the devil are both inside each of us, as Benjamin suggests, then any question of an independently existing God becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? And arguing about such a God is pointless. Yet that's exactly what he continues to do, which means he doesn't think God and the devil just exist inside each of us. His confusion and inconsistency arises from attempting to argue that determinism and free will are opposite and incompatible concepts. And guess what? It ain't so. That's just not true. In fact, determinism and free will go hand in hand. But only if each of those terms is defined properly and in the proper context. We've discussed this before on the show. Yes, there are basic concepts that cannot be proven, and they are called axioms. And the two concepts that cannot be proven are existence and consciousness. That's why they're axiomatic. That means not subject to proof, in the sense of that proof being offered as an argument of some sort. I can't prove non-existence, because if I could, then my proof wouldn't exist, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's a contradiction. I can't prove that there's no consciousness, since it requires consciousness to understand my proof. Existence and consciousness are axiomatic for two fundamental reasons. One, the law of non-contradiction. In reality, there are no contradictions. A thing cannot exist and not exist at the same time. 
A person cannot be alive and dead at the same time. You cannot travel back in time to change the present, etc. And if you ever do encounter an apparent contradiction, then all you are encountering is an instance of error on your part, which can only be resolved by solving the contradiction. This idea that I am, I will, I think, you know, are proof of a free will, they're not proving anything. But the operative word here, the one that matters, is I choose. And it is only to those areas of existence that are open to choice that exercising our free will can be deterministically applied. Our free will is both limited and expanded only by the number of choices we have at our disposal. My free will can never affect the law of gravity. That's been determined for me. I have no choice about that. Why a creator is necessary to prove free will is really beyond reason. It's a non sequitur even if there were a creator that, a that doesn't answer anything with respect to humanity's possession of a free will. Now here's, here's the whole point, of course. The universe is a deterministic entity. So get over it, don't deny the obvious. Gravity will force the ball to the floor when you drop it each and every time, and you cannot will it differently. Human beings are part of the universe and not some unnatural foreign objects from another dimension. Therefore, the deterministic forces of nature also apply to human beings. And here's the great irony. What has been determined is that human beings have a free will. Nor could it be otherwise. There's no conflict here. God is a complete unnecessary leap of faith because reason resolves the apparent contradiction. Now, determinism has nothing to do with having your choices being made by mere chemical reactions. If that were so, who says our choices don't determine the chemical reactions? But that's not what determinism in this context means. By determined, we mean the past. Determined does not mean determined by some kind of human intelligence, godlike or otherwise, nor does it mean this chemical reaction series. Determined means that it is beyond your power to change it, and that is always what we call the past. You know, it's like Dudley Moore noted in our opener today. He didn't get to pick his parents or the conditions into which he was born. Those things were determined for him. But that doesn't negate his free will. It establishes the foundation on which that free will must be exercised. Free will can only be exercised in the present, and not in the past, nor in the future. The point of action is always and only in the present. It is the only point of time in which free will applies, and to action, which of course necessarily includes thought and thinking. The undetermined is the future. And here's where morality comes in. It is against that undetermined future that we require morality to guide us through, ironically, so that we can make our future one determined by us, by our own free will. And once we've done that, and that future becomes the past, it's determined for everyone. Free will is not a thing that exists metaphysically, which is always what's implied in all of these circular discussions, you know, circulating on the internet these days. I mean, you, you won't find a free will sitting on someone's desktop or table. But does free will actually exist? Yes. Free will is a concept. 
one that we use to distinguish the behavior of human beings from that of animals and other living things in nature who do not possess free will. That's a conclusion we can only arrive at by scientific observation and comparison, not by some sort of undefinable divine inspiration or revelation. Animals are hopelessly driven to their behaviors by deterministic instincts and cannot behave or think in a manner outside, quote-unquote, their own nature, in the way, for example, that human beings can conceptualize an idea of, say, traveling into outer space and then making that dream a reality. Outer space is not the determined naturalistic environment for human beings. While our physical bodies are ruled by deterministic forces, what we think and what we do are not. Quote, without a belief in God or a creator or something that sparks our divinity, then there is no such thing as free will. Therefore, you can't use words like I am, I will, because we'd just be animals. We'd just be a series of chemical reactions. You know, that, that comment by Benjamin reminds me of the response that we might get from someone like Gehad said. You know, he talks a lot about the biology of human beings and how much that actually plays a role in our behavior. But he sent out on September 1st a very interesting tweet that relates to this very issue. And I quote, My wife asked me what we should do today. And as an atheist who does not rely on a holy book for moral guidance, I suggested that we look for a nearby village to rape and pillage. Because remember, without divine morality, why would we not all be psychopaths every second of the day? End quote. So, you know, you can, see, you can see the humor in that, and you can see what he's getting at with that one. Here again, on this side of the bumper, a smile or two from Pat Condell, while on the returning side of our bumper, we'll listen into Jordan Peterson's attempt to reconcile science and religion. In, no, in Iran, this is true, I read just recently, in Iran, people are having their hands chopped off for, for thieving, right? And, you know, Islamic law and that. But what's happening? They're picking up the hand as soon as it's chopped off, right? With the other hand, obviously. <laughs> and they're, they're taking it around the doctors, having it sewn back on again. Now, the mullahs don't know if this is right or wrong. So they're getting the Quran, looking in the Quran for the answer, is this allowed? But obviously it's not in there because Muhammad wrote the Quran centuries before the advent of microsurgery. <laughs> Some prophet he turned out to be. <laughs> Well, no, I worry about these things because they say the Quran is the word of God, but they say the Bible is the word of God. Obviously, God's got two words. <laughs> I'm a scientist, but I'm also, I would say, I'm also a religious person. I'm a deeply religious person. And how do you I reconcile those? those? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's that. And I spent literally, I've spent 40 years thinking about that. And for 20 of those years, I did almost nothing but think about that all the time. And I realized something partly from reading Carl Jung. And what I realized was that even the fundamentalists have, have the wrong idea about religious truth. Religious truth is not scientific truth, like the, the stories in the Genesis, which are very old stories, maybe tens of thousands of years old. They're obviously not scientific theories because the people who wrote them weren't scientists. We didn't have science until about 500 years ago. So the idea that the stories in Genesis are scientific theories is, is it's just false on, on every possible front. And so then you might say, well, there's no other truth but scientific truth. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's not true. Because what scientific truth tells you is what things are. But genuine religious truth tells you how you should act.
And those things are not the same. And so a great story, like a great novel, which is a quasi-religious construction because it's, it's like a distillation of ordinary life into its most important elements, that's a map about how you should comport yourself in the world. And you might say, well, what do you mean by should? And because that's, that's the question the moral relativists ask. And there's an answer to that, too, as far as I can tell. And I got this partly from reading Jean Piaget. So imagine that here's how you should act. You should act so that things are good for you like they would be for someone you're taking care of. But they have to be good for you in a way that's also good for your family. And they have to be good for you and your family in a way that's also good for society. And maybe even also good for the broader environment, if you can manage that. So it's balanced at all those levels. And then they, that has to be good for you and your family and society and the world right now and next week and next month and a year from now and 10 years from now. And so it's this harmonious balancing of multiple layers of being simultaneously. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a Darwinian reality, I would say. Your brain is actually attuned to tell you when you're doing that. And the way it tells you is that it, sh it reveals that what you're doing is meaningful. That's the sign that you, and your nervous system is adapted to do this. It's adapted to exist, I would say, on the, on the edge between order and chaos. And chaos is where things are so complex you can't handle it. And order is where things are so rigid that it's too restrictive. In between that, there's a place, a, a place that's meaningful, where you're partly stabilized and partly curious. And you're operating in a manner that increases your scope of, of knowledge. So you're, you're inquiring and growing. And at the same time, you're stabilizing and renewing you, your family, society, nature, now, next week, next month, and next year. And when you have an intimation of meaning, then you know you're there. And, and religious writings in the deepest sense, so those are archetypal writings, are are, are guidelines to that mode of being. So they're not true, like scientific truth is true. They're, I think of them as hyper, they're hyper true or meta true. It's like we take the most true things about your life, and then we take the most true things about 10 other people's lives, and we amalgamate them into a single figure, and that would be like a, that would be like a literary hero. And then we take a thousand literary heroes and we extract out from each of them what makes the most heroic person. That's a religious deity. That's what Christ is. He's a meta-hero. And that sits at the bottom of Western civilization. And his archetypal mode of being is true speech. That's the fundamental idea of Western civilization. And it's right. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. You know, free speech is important, but it's not the most fundamental idea behind Western civilization. It's essential to it, but not fundamental. The condition of freedom is always exactly that. It is conditional. Free speech and individual freedom are part and parcel of merely differing components of a single condition, and that's political freedom. That's the condition that always arises when governments limit their activities to the protection of life, liberty, and property. Now, I do like Peterson's analogy of how a hero is created by the best qualities of the most true things about the most heroic people. I mean, that makes sense. Extract those characteristics and you have a hero 
of a great story or novel, which he calls a quasi-religious construction. But that's the point, isn't it? It's all about the story. It's not about deity. This is something that we've been saying over and over again on the show. The stories are moral stories, illustrating cause and consequence in the hopes that when we encounter similar stories in our own lives, we can borrow on the past experience and knowledge of others to help avoid the same pitfall or to help make the right choice for what is meaningful to you and right for everyone else involved, right? Now, Jordan Peterson's attempt to define God during his debate with Sam Harris that we highlighted a couple weeks back only served for me to illustrate that he has no idea whatever of how to describe God since virtually everything in the universe was evidence of God to him. But even so, not once did Peterson accept the existence of a metaphysically existing God, saying, I behave as if God exists. In other words, he's saying, I don't believe God exists. But he won't say it. And he also shared Sam Harris's view that a belief in an afterlife was extremely destructive to morality. So he doesn't believe in an afterlife either. Now, I've always noted how Jordan Peterson tends to rely on the works of Carl Jung. So I looked it up in my Encyclopedia of Philosophy that I referred to earlier. But I did find this very interesting passage about Jung in this encyclopedia that relates directly to what Peterson has been saying, and I quote, Jung held that the increase in scientific understanding has led to a dehumanization of the natural and social worlds. A former unconscious acceptance of natural phenomenon, which involved endowing them with symbolic power, has disappeared. It follows that men have a strong need for religious beliefs and experiences, since in religious form they are able to encounter and accept the contents of the collective unconscious. Religious beliefs, Jung conceded, cannot be shown to be true, but he held they cannot be shown to be false either. Whether to believe or not is thus a matter of choice on purely pragmatic grounds. Jung regarded with deep suspicion, as essentially one-sided and distorting, the rationalist traditions of scientific thought. Indeed, he dated the disorientation of modern man partly from the original Christian break with paganism, but more importantly, from the Enlightenment. Now, the linchpin of Jung's theorizing, continues the article, the concept of the collective unconscious, is so formed that it appears that whereas the existence of the collective unconscious was advanced as an explanatory hypothesis, the question of whether the collective unconsciousness exists cannot be answered by any possible observation or experiment. Well, hello! Finally, it is worth noting that we possess no statistical evidence of a worthwhile kind about the efficacy of Jungian psychotherapy. Lacking this evidence, we are forced to conclude that although Jung established a psychological system of some complexity, there are as yet no grounds for believing any of its propositions, which go beyond recording empirical data, either as to the nature of personality or as to the process of cure. And that was from the encyclopedia. That entry was made by Alistair McIntyre. So I wonder how a collective unconscious compares to a collective consciousness. Literally speaking, neither actually exists since consciousness is an exclusively individualistic phenomenon, isn't it? There's no collective consciousness or unconscious for a simple reason. There is no collective. Since any collective is merely a convention invented or defined by the number of individuals comprising the chosen collective category. You can create a collective out of anything. 
but none of them exist independently as an entity of any sort. Now, the dangers of symbolism in our stories and analogies lies in taking those symbols too literally or applying them to situations completely out of any proper context. And just for fun, what you are about to hear is not Jordan Peterson, though you might think so, but an August 10th YouTube Badro spoof of Jordan Peterson, which really says something a lot deeper than just the good-natured humor itself. Okay. Okay, so Burger King, that name is so bloody complicated. It, it took me like three months of non-stop thought to figure this out. Well, you look at it and you can say pretty confidently, King, that's actually an instantiation of a patriarchal mode of being, isn't it? It's like that's the typification of a fatherly figure that exists at the top of all possible dominance hierarchies. I guess that'd be a good way to describe it. And But it's not a king per se when you go to Burger King. It's the instantiation of an individual as necessarily being the embodiment of the transcendent ideal of a king. It's a king as such. The typified aspect of kinship as such is inexorably tied up with the word. And what does a typified father figure do? Well, he provides, doesn't he? He provides food and, and shelter and burgers. Well, yeah, that's bloody well right, a king who provides burgers, Ex exactly. You know, you know, when Alexander Solzhenitsyn was in the gulags, he, he thought about food a lot. And there they were given 10 ounces of bread a day. And that's like your food for the day. And that's it. And one of the things he tried to puzzle out is in what ways life up until that point had been complicit in producing the Soviet state. And, and that's a question that if you really try to answer it, man, it's, that's rough, man. It, it takes you to a dark place. So I think, well, well no, I'd better not. I, I don't have enough information to answer that competently. All I can say right now is the degree to which we preside to patronize fast food restaurants that, that aren't instantiations of a sovereign ideal, it may have a bigger effect than we think. You know, the world's a funny place and it's a lot more connected than we understand. And well, yeah, that's, that's all I can say about that right now. I couldn't help noticing that you were making an unsuccessful suicide bed. But what are you doing in my room? What do you want? I'm here to help you, Mr. Moon. You realise that suicide's a criminal offence. In less enlightened times, I'd have hung you for it. What are you on about? Would the words Prince of Darkness mean anything to you? Beelzebub? Mephistopheles? The Horned One? I know you've escaped from somewhere. No, I haven't, Mr. Moon. I'm the Horned One. The Devil. Let me give you my card. Oh, yes, the devil. Of course. So they hold me. Cool. Blimey, I left my hanky at Wimpy's. Uh, I wonder if you'll excuse me. Don't rush away, Mr. Moon. You're a nutcase. You're a bleeding nutcase. They said the same of Jesus Christ, Freud and Galileo. They said it have a lot of nutcases, too. You're not as stupid as you look, are you, Mr. Moon? Got these very insightful viewpoints from 
the publication Morality Without God, which was written and published in 1950. And a couple of the main authors of that book are Frank Skiff Janoda and M.M. Mangasarian, who I quoted earlier. Janoda, um, his mother was a rationalist who became the director of the American Humanist Association. And he himself was known for being the friend and golfing companion of the well-known freethinker and rationalist Arthur Morrow Lewis. And M.M. Mangasarian was for 23 years a Presbyterian minister. Then one Sunday during a pastorate in Philadelphia, he told his people that he had a message for them. He was leaving them, and on the next Sunday, he would speak from a hall for which he would pay the rent himself. I do not ask one of you to follow me, he said, but many did. Thus began the brilliant career on an independent platform of a man who renounced supernaturalism and called himself first a rationalist and later a humanist. Transferring his lecture to Chicago as leader of the independent religious society in that city, he attracted substantial financial backing and drew audiences often greater than 1,500. Sounds like the Jordan Peterson of his time. To Mangasarian, Humanism was definitely a religion, and note that, because that's something that even they acknowledged is a necessity, and religion is not the same as deity or beliefs in the supernatural. He made contact with the religious humanists through Dr. Curtis Rees, and in 1922 affiliated his society with the Western Unitarian Conference, where, as Edward Everett Hale once told him, a man could, quote, believe in one God or forty or none, end quote. He was a genuine humanist pioneer of the new religion of which he became the exponent. He said, If there is another world, we shall not be sorry for having made the best of this. And if there be no other life, shall we not be glad to think that we did not waste or lose this one? Let all progressive forces in our country, all the freeborn men and women who can think, cooperate and promote the religion of humanism, end quote. And he wrote this under the heading of, If this is religion, what is irreligion? The proposition that there can be no morality without God and that the earth would be a hell without Christ, in its final analysis, means this. People will not be moral without the belief in a future life. It is the hope of a future reward which gives to the God idea its value. St. Paul himself admitted that, if the Christians believed in Christ for this life only, then they were of all men the most miserable. Were the clergy to tell their flocks this morning that although they felt sure of the existence of God, they had their doubts about another life, how many of them would return to worship on the following Sunday? To placate the deity that he may reward us in the future is, frankly, the object of all religious ceremonies. If this be true, then the proposition that without God there can be no morality amounts to this. Without future rewards and punishments, no man will live a moral life. This doctrine leads to the following conclusions. First, a man is naturally immoral, and the only way he can, he can be arrested in his career of vice and crime is to promise him future rewards if he will behave himself, and to menace him with hellfire if he will not. Secondly, the proposition implies that morality per se is not desirable, that no one would be virtuous for its own sake, and that without great eternal rewards, morality would go a-begging. What really makes men moral, he asks. Why do people desire health? Certainly not for any post-mortem rewards. 
The health of the body is cultivated for its own beautiful sake. Health is joy, it is power, it is beauty, it is strength. Are not these enough to make health sacred? But if the health of the body does not need the prop of future rewards to commend itself to us, what good reason have we to think that morality, which is the health of the mind, is a wretched investment if there be no other life? Morality is temperance. How can our ideas about the unseen world so change the worth of temperance as to make it a stupid and irksome restraint? If it is good to be tempered in the pursuit of pleasure or of wealth or in the gratification of desire, why should our speculations about the hereafter alter our attitude towards the value of temperance and self-control in everything? God or no God, he concludes, a future life or no future life, is not temperance better than intemperance? To ask why should a man practice temperance, even if it be preferable to intemperance, is to insinuate that man is by nature either a fool or a monster, and that he will not behave well unless he is promised enormous returns in the shape of eternal rewards or scared to death by eternal torments. Well, if the preachers are right, it's a serious question whether so depraved a creature as man even deserves to be saved at all. To have created so contemptible a creature was a great enough blunder. But think of perpetuating this race forever and ever, end quote. Well, finally, we come to the bottom line, and this is from Leonard Peikoff from the book Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, and, he, and where he points out literally what is the standard of moral value and where it comes from. And I quote, Plants and animals initiate automatically the actions their life requires. Such entities may encounter adverse conditions beyond their capacity to cope with, such as drought, temperature extremes, or an absence of food. In addition, an animal's knowledge may prove inadequate, but whatever the conditions they encounter, and whatever an animal's knowledge, there is no alternative in the functioning of these organisms. Within the limit of their ability, they act necessarily to attain those objects to sustain their existence. They can be destroyed, but they cannot pursue their own destruction or even be neutral in regard to it. Implicitly, life is their inbuilt standard of value which determines all the goals and actions. Man, however, is the living being with a volitional, conceptual consciousness. As such, leaving aside his internal bodily processes, he has no inbuilt goal or standard of value. He follows no automatic course of action. In particular, he does not automatically value or pursue self-preservation. The evidence of this fact is overwhelming. It includes not only deliberate suicides, but also people's frequent hostility to the most elementary life-sustaining practices. As examples, one may consider the Middle Ages or the more mystical countries of the Near and Far East, or even the leaders of the modern West. <laughs> For a human being, the desire to live, the knowledge of what life requires, are an achievement, not a biological gift. Like every entity, man has a nature. Like the other organisms, he must follow a specific course of action if he is to survive. But man is not born knowing what that course is, nor does such knowledge well up in him effortlessly. He has to seek out the knowledge and then decide to act on it. Man, writes Ayn Rand, has to hold his life as a value by choice. He has to learn to sustain it by choice. He has to discover the values it requires and practice his virtues by choice. How is he to discover all this? That is the purpose of morality. 
Morality in Ayn Rand's definition is a code of values accepted by choice, and man needs it for one reason only. He needs it in order to survive. Moral laws, in this view, are principles that define how to nourish and sustain human life. They are no more than this and no less. Morality is the instruction manual in regard to proper care and use that did not come with man. It is the science of human self-preservation, end quote. Now, how's that for a reconciliation between science and morality? No reconciliation necessary. They are one and the same. Now, of course, the only possible standard of morality is life itself, and, and that's not limited to the mere existence of the organism, but to all that life implies. And we've already learned that the protection of life, liberty, and property as the political standard of morality, politics being the fourth branch of philosophy, you know, subject to the ethics on which it is based, has resulted in an improvement of mankind on every scale imaginable, from the spiritual, having to do with the mind, to the material, having to do with the body. Scottish philosopher John McMurray clearly defined good and evil in simple terms, rationality and irrationality. Since human beings are the only rational animal, good and evil are terms that can only apply to them. Immature and mystical religions, as McMurray referred to religions in his time, have done more to harm morality than to support it. In fact, morality has been inverted to the point where rational self-interest is considered a sin and evil, while self-sacrifice to the will and interests of others has been elevated to a high moral plane. I mean, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they are doing, right? The good has become the evil, and the evil has become the good. And they still don't know what they're doing. The irony of this, of course, is that all of the so-called godless dictators the world over also operate on the same moral principles. Being collectivist in nature, self-interest is discouraged and even outlawed, while being sacrificed to the collective is the highest moral duty of the individual. That's every form of collectivism from communism to fascism. Yet religious people see dictators as atheists and therefore conclude that atheism is the problem behind the evils of collectivism. Now, as I've said in the past, atheism is a big nothing. It's not a belief in something, but a rejection of a belief in deity not shared. There are a million things I don't believe in, but to judge me according to those things will leave you knowing less than nothing about me. <laughs> to judge a person, a dictator, or a nation on what they do not believe in is sheer irrationality. Whatever actions are taken by any intelligent being are always based on what they do believe in and act upon. Look closer at those ideas they do put into practice, not the ones they've rejected and don't act on. For our part, here at Just Right, we have a long-standing history of what we believe in and why. Freedom and capitalism are the consequences of living in a properly constituted moral society. Only an objective morality can lead us in the right direction, which is exactly where we'll be headed again next week. So be sure to join us again then when we will continue that journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be by the way, the last thing I want to do tonight is offend someone's religious beliefs. But uh, before we get to that, um... 